Well, many years ago, when I was in my final year of my Bible college degree, I noticed a trend amongst uh, my fellow classmates, the upperclassmen, that we were very serious about our studies. You know, not like those first-year students who were at college for an experience, right? Like, we were serious. We were there to finish what we had started many years ago so that we could finally, like, move on to our careers or to further education and, uh, you know, like, get on with life. And it's not that being serious about your studies is a bad thing, right? As Christians, we believe that we are, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. But as I looked around at my peers and myself, I wondered, were we actually putting into practice these great truths that we were studying at Bible college? Were we actually living out our faith? Or were we just doing what needed to get done so that we could finish off our degrees? But there was one student who appeared different than the rest, and his name was Trevor. And even though I knew who he was, we didn't really know each other. And Trevor stood out because not only did he engage with all the things that we were learning in class, but Trevor put them into practice. He really lived them out. Uh, he, not only did he serve long, around campus quite a bit, but you wouldn't be surprised to be walking down a hallway to see Trevor praying for a student or even for one of the professors. Uh, he would go out of his way to encourage other students because Trevor genuinely cared about others. And I remember exactly where I was in the college campus chapel when I was thinking to myself, or maybe it was the Holy Spirit who was speaking to me, saying, Dave, you need to be more like Trevor and that you need someone like him in your life so that they can show you better how to live out your faith. And so right after that chapel, as weird and as awkward as it sounds, I marched right up to Trevor and I said, hey man, my name's Dave. Uh, I think we should be friends because I need to learn from you how to like put my faith into practice. I was that smooth. <laughs> yeah. He responded something like, that's cool. Now he was from California and all the cool guys come from California. Right, Lyle? Yeah, shout out there to Lyle. Um, and over the next two years, Trevor and I, we had this fantastic friendship. But more than that, uh, even though it wasn't formal and we never called it this, but in my eyes, he mentored me over, the, last, over the, the next two years how to live out what we were learning. He was a role model to me, even though we were peers. And that's just what we find here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30 that we're looking at this morning, where Paul sets before the believers in Philippi and before us role models, two people who are living out their faith. They not only believe, but their actions show us what it means to be followers of Jesus. And that's just what real faith does. Genuine faith believes and embodies. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. 
I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not, only, not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me. Well, over the last three weeks, as we have been in this series in Philippians, we have been seeing how Paul expects the believers to live out this one command he gave back in chapter 1, verse 27, which says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so everything that's followed from that verse on till now has been all about that, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In chapter 2, he says that this is marked by unity. We need to be like-minded, having the same love, being of one spirit and one mind. So it's marked by unity. He also says it's marked by humility. In verses 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Then Paul moves on in verses 5 to 11 to demonstrate how Jesus' life was marked by obedience and humility, writing, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross. Now, giving us Jesus as the prototypical model of the type of behavior that Paul is calling each of us to is really important because our goal as Christians is ultimately to live as Jesus did, right? And so if Paul is telling us to live a certain way, well, then that better line up with the way Jesus lived himself. Then last Sunday, we focused on verses 12 to 19, where Paul explains further how this obedience is lived out. And that it's not just a matter of our self-will or our hard efforts, but rather it's depending on God's spirit in our lives. That obedience is working out what God has already worked in. And in that passage, Paul alluded to an example of what failure to live obedient looks like. In verses 14 to 15, he contrasts the Philippians with the ancient Israelites who wandered the desert but who lived in hostility with each other and who grumbled and complained. And Paul says to the Philippians, don't be like that. We could easily overlook this morning's passage, though, as just like travel itinerary. You know, it's boring, and so we just skip over it. But it's far more than that. 
Here, Paul is giving the Philippians and us two examples of what faithful obedience looks like in Timothy and Epaphroditus. And I think these two examples are very important to us for several reasons. First of all, when Jesus is held up as that example, like he holds him up in verses 5 to 11, he is the ultimate model. Jesus is the best. He is unrivaled and without fault. And it's important for us to see what flawless faith looks like. However, if Jesus were our only example, we might feel discouraged or even defeated before we even started because, well, we'll never be as faithful as Jesus. He is perfect. He is God. The Philippians, they may have even struggled when Paul's held up as an example, right? Like, look at his faithfulness. He's an apostle. He's got to have, like, you know, he's got to be special to faithfully endure so much hardship and persecution, even prison, which he's writing us from. They may think, how could we ever even be like Paul? But you see, the Philippians knew Timothy and Epaphroditus. They spent time with them. They've seen before how Timothy has proved himself. And, well, Epaphroditus, he's the hometown boy. He's one of them. They grew up with him. And so he's even the one that they sent with their gift to help Paul in prison. And it's for this very reason, because the Philippians know Epaphroditus and Timothy, and because their lives exemplify obedience marked by unity and humility, that Paul uses them as examples here, that they are examples of faith that believes and embodies. Paul starts with Timothy in verse 19. He says, I hope to send him to you soon, but soon doesn't have a definitive date because as Paul will explain in verse 23, he wants to have Timothy around until Paul knows how things are going to work out for himself. You see, Paul is hopeful that there will be an innocent verdict in his case soon so that he will be released from prison. In verse 24, he says, I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come to you soon. But Paul doesn't want to send Timothy on ahead until he knows what his future circumstances look like. You might recall if you were here for our opening sermon on this book that uh, prisoners back then, they weren't provided food or anything they might have needed from the prison or from the jailer themselves. They had to get those things for themselves. So it was vital that they had someone on the outside who could go shopping for them and get the things that they needed. And Paul likely wants to keep Timothy around to be the one to do this for him. But more than just important, how important it was for helping Paul with his physical needs, probably was having him around for his social and emotional support too. Think about how important it would be for Paul to have someone like Timothy around while he is sitting alone in prison. And at this point in his life, Timothy is probably the closest friend that Paul has. In fact, more than a friend. We see in verse 22, it, Paul says that Timothy is like a son, having worked closely alongside Paul in his ministry of the gospel. And this father-son relationship speaks of more than just this deep affection that Paul and Timothy would have for one another. See, in the ancient world, and still throughout much of our world today, children, they learn their trade, their life's work, apprenticing under their parents. And so if your parents were bakers, 
then it was more than likely that you, were, you would grow up and you would run the family bakery too. Or often, even our last names might indicate something like this. If your last name happens to be Taylor, maybe somebody in your family tree mended or altered clothing. Or if your last name was Smith, there's a good chance that some great relative out there uh, worked in metalwork. And this is how Timothy has learned to live out his faith. Apprenticing under Paul, watching Paul closely, imitating his life, his speech, his attitudes. So that just as the Smith's child can produce metalwork from the forge as excellent and praiseworthy as their father, so Timothy's faith comes out resembling Paul's. As they have worked alongside one another, Timothy not only has learned from Paul great spiritual truths, he has seen how Paul has lived these things out. Faith that is believed and embodied. In verse 19, Paul goes on to tell the Philippians why he's sending Timothy to them. And it's actually the opposite reason that he almost always gives in his letters to churches why he sends someone on ahead. Usually, he says it's for their sake. Like, I'm sending Titus to you for your sake, either to, like, um, you know, work out some sort of misunderstanding or to prepare the way for Paul. But here, Paul says it's for his own sake. He says that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Paul plans to send Timothy so that he can be encouraged by good news about them. So what is this good news that Paul is hoping to hear about the Philippians? Well, he plans first to send Epaphroditus with this very letter that we're reading. And he's hoping that once they receive it and read it, then they will begin to live according to what Paul has written. That they'll start living in obedience, marked by unity and humility. Then, after when he sends Timothy, and Timothy finally arrives in Philippi, he'll see their faithfulness, and when he goes back to Paul, he can tell him of the good report, and this will encourage him. Now, this is, seems to us maybe a strange way of motivating the Philippians to live in obedience. But this is not a way that is unfamiliar to most of us. So, for example, when my children were really little and my wife Andrea stayed home with them, as I would prepare to leave the house to go to work, I would get my kids to come over to me and I'd give them a hug goodbye and I would say, oh, I'm going to miss you and I can't wait to get home to see you again and to hear from mommy what a helpful boy you've been today. <laughs> now, when I said things like this, I wasn't warning my children, right? And I wasn't, you know, threatening them with any sort of punishment. Rather, I was trying to incentivize my kids to obey and to do their best at an age when making mom and dad proud was still a motivation for them. <laughs> we shouldn't, it still is, right? Where's my son? Yes, yes, amen, amen. And as the Philippians' spiritual father, this is just what Paul is doing. He's motivating the Philippians to live faithfully by saying, I'm going to send Timothy to you so that I can be encouraged by the great report that I know he will bring back to me. But why Timothy? Because Timothy is a model of faith 
that believes and embodies the very things that Paul has just written to them about. He says in verse 20 to 21, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everybody else, they look out for their own interests, but not Timothy. They don't look out for the interests of Jesus Christ. Remember how Paul told the Philippians back in verses 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interest of others. Other people, Paul writes, they don't look out for others' interests. They only look out for their own interests. They act out of selfish ambition, but not Timothy. Timothy is a living example of obedient faith that Paul is writing them about. Timothy values other interests above his own. Timothy genuinely cares. And what's astounding in verse 21 is that Paul suggests that by looking out for the interests of others, you are actually looking out for the interests of Christ. By looking out for the interests of others, you are actually serving Jesus by caring for them. But for many of us here who are familiar with the Gospels, this should not come as a surprise to us. We read in Matthew 25, Jesus says that when he will return in glory at his second coming, he is going to come like a shepherd who separates the goats from the sheep, and he's going to say to those sheep on his right-hand side, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Theologian N.T. Wright says, to serve Jesus and to serve his people, they are one and the same. I think we also need to recognize what Paul does not say in his commendation of Timothy here as this model of faith for us. He doesn't say that Timothy is an excellent teacher or an exciting preacher. He doesn't say Timothy's saintly or super spiritual. Rather, the mark of Timothy's faithfulness is that he genuinely cares. The mark of his faithfulness, he genuinely cares for others. Paul seems to care more about unselfish love than anything else to do with a person. He then moves on to give his commendation of Epaphroditus, the Philippians church courier who delivered their monetary gift to Paul. Paul says that he finds it necessary to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians, even though it would have been advantageous for Paul to keep him around. It's also clear from this letter that Paul cares for Epaphroditus and that it would have been super beneficial for him to have just even another friend around while he was in prison. But Paul thinks it's necessary to send him back because the Philippians heard that Epaphroditus was ill. Paul says that he was so ill he almost died and this probably had the Philippians worried and wondering, like, what's happened to them, to him? It's not like they could send a text or an email to find out. 
But what I find curious is how did they find out that he was ill in the first place? Most likely, what happened was when they sent Epaphroditus with their monetary gift, there is no way that he would have traveled the road from Philippi to most likely Rome, where Paul's in prison, alone. He wouldn't have traveled those roads alone. There was too great of a chance that he would have been robbed, perhaps even killed. And so Paul would have had some traveling companions. And verse 30 says that he got ill on the journey, but rather than turning back, he went on to Rome to fulfill his mission and deliver the Philippians' gift to Paul. Likely what happened was Epaphroditus' traveling companions returned to Philippi while Epaphroditus remained in Rome, and whether he recovered or succumbed to his illness, they didn't know, but when they got back to the Philippian church, they would have given an account of all that they had gone through and, and the illness that Epaphroditus was suffering from. Paul tells us, though, that God miraculously heals him, but now Epaphroditus is distressed because he knows that his church family back home in Philippi, they know that he was at death's door, but they don't know that he's recovered. And as we've all experienced, being in limbo like this with someone we love, not knowing how things are going, it's heartbreaking. It's excruciating. And so Epaphroditus, he wants to return because he loves his church family and he wants them to know that he's okay. And Paul, he feels the same. In verse 20, he says, I'm eager to send him so that when you see him again, you will be glad and I will have less anxiety. In this verse, Paul is practicing what he preaches. Specifically, he's not looking to his own interests, but to the interests of the Philippians. By sending Epaphroditus back, it would have been to his advantage to keep him around, but Paul values others above himself. Paul's more concerned about Epaphroditus' distress and the anxiety that the Philippian church has not knowing what's happened to him, and he's willing to sacrifice his comfort for their sake. And he says that it will bring him peace. We not only learn Paul's reasons here for sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi, but we also learn about his character, Epaphroditus' character. And like Timothy, he genuinely cares for others. He longs to be with the Philippians, and he's grieved by their distress. And this is a mark of genuine discipleship to Jesus, that the pain of another disciple becomes a concern for us too. And that successes of others in the church are also reasons for us to celebrate as well, right? In Romans, Paul writes to the believers there, he says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so one of the ways that you and I embody our faith is being genuinely concerned and caring for one another here. This means we get to know other people in the church and that we are willing to be vulnerable with them to share what's actually going on in our lives. Oh, this is scary stuff, eh? Good thing Paul will write later in Philippians 4 that I can do all things through him who gives me strength. One of the marks of authentic discipleship to Jesus is that we genuinely know and care for others in the local church, but also that we allow them to know and care for us too. Look then how Paul describes Epaphroditus. He says of him that he's a brother 
a coworker, a fellow soldier, and a messenger. And he applies these titles of honor to Epaphroditus because he is selfless and walks in humility. Not because of any position that Epaphroditus had or any skills that he possessed. Epaphroditus came and remained in Rome in order to serve Paul. It wasn't like he was going from you know, church to church to church, acting as some sort of substitute preacher on Paul's behalf. It's more likely he was visiting the market to buy Paul food, that he was washing Paul's robes, that he was tending to Paul's wounds. Yet Paul equates all of this to being a co-worker, that Epaphroditus isn't some subordinate to Paul playing some lesser role in the kingdom of God. Rather, Paul sees him as a fellow soldier, so they are in the trenches together. And that's how you and I are to view one another. Despite our different gifts and the roles that we play, serving together, we are sisters and brothers in arms. We are co-workers of Christ's kingdom. 1 Peter 2 says that you are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so you and I, we are all ministers of the gospel. We're all ministers. Not just those of us with a title like pastor or missionary, not just those of us who preach. Could you imagine if we were all preachers? That's enough said about that. <laughs> According to Paul here, you're like, thank you, there's only one of you, Dave, right? According to Paul here, what makes us ministers is our willingness to serve one another in humility out of love for each other and Christ. That's what makes us ministers. Our willingness to serve one another in humility out of love for each other and Christ. Faith believes and embodies, but that embodiment, it expresses itself in humble, sacrificial love for each other. And that's the other reason Paul holds up this Epaphroditus as an example here. It's the sacrifice he was willing to make. Verse 30 says that he almost died for the work of the church. He risked his life to make up for the help that the Philippians themselves could not give. Talk about a sacrifice. I don't think Paul is suggesting to us here that you have to risk your life in order to serve others, in order to be faithful. That certainly is the pinnacle, though. Jesus says that as much as that in John 15 when he says, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. But even though we may not die in Christian service, uh, our lived-out faith, it should bear the marks of sacrifice. It should bear the marks of taking up our cross and following him. That these are the marks of genuine, authentic faith. The life that Jesus lived, it embodied, it incarnated the kind of faithful obedience that God desires from you and me. It was marked by selflessness and a willingness to suffer for the benefit of others. And this is the good news of the gospel that we love so much. That God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loves us. And God exemplified this sacrificial, self-denying love for our sake and for our benefit. That it says in 1 John 4, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent 
his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God sent his son, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so the father, he sacrificed his son for our sins because the father loves us. We no longer need to live in guilt or shame if we put our trust in Christ because of God's sacrifice, we can be forgiven. He sacrificed the Son for our benefit, to pay for our sins. Then in John 10, Jesus says these words. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. So Jesus wasn't just sacrificed by the Father, he was willing to suffer for our sake, that he laid down his life of his own accord because of his great love for you and for me. Now, isn't this interesting? That Jesus the Son, his love embodies those same sacrificial traits as the Heavenly Father's love. It's kind of like how I mentioned earlier how children learn their trade, their life's work from their parents, apprenticing under them, becoming a baker or a tailor, just like mom and dad. And the best compliment that an apprentice can receive is that the quality of their work is superb because it bears the resemblance of the master who taught them. And Jesus' work, it resembles that of God the Father's. And Timothy's work, his obedience, it bore the resemblance of his teacher, Paul. And when you and I put our trust in Christ, then in the same way, we become apprentices under Jesus. And he is our master. And our life's work and our faithful obedience to him, it should then bear the marks and begin to resemble the loving sacrifice that Jesus himself made for us. In 1 John 3, 16, it says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. And Timothy and Epaphroditus, they are examples of that. Love that's willing to sacrifice for brothers and sisters. Faith that both believes and embodies. I want to invite the worship team. You can start to make your way up. You see, one of the things that stands out to me from this passage is how important it is for us to have other people in our lives that we can learn from. Jesus is our ultimate mentor, but we need others, just like the Philippians had Timothy and Epaphroditus. And this is not just a shout out to the young people in our church having mentors. I worked with youth and young adults for 20 years, and yes, I believe that they have mentors, but I believe that all of us should as well. And what point in our Christian journey have we made it? At what point have we arrived where we no longer need others whom we can learn from about living out our faith? Plus, there's nothing in the Bible or anywhere else that says your mentor has to be someone who's older than you. We can learn from young people too. And if you really want to set an example for the young people of our church, don't just be a mentor. Also be an apprentice. And don't wait for somebody else to come along and mentor you either. It was awkward when I approached my friend Trevor, but in hindsight, I look back and say, oh man, it was totally worth it. And every time that I have 
found someone, I'm like, I need to learn from them. And I approach them to, to teach me things about life and ministry. There's been sacrifices to make along the way. Sometimes I've been rejected. Other times I've had to get up really early in order to meet them. But it has always been worth it to have their example in my life. We need models of faith that we can look up to. People who embody faith and not just believe. And we need to be willing to be examples and mentors to others. Timothy and Epaphroditus, they weren't perfect, but Paul uses them as an example because they are flesh and blood evidence that the principles Paul is calling us to live by. They do not ask more of us than God gives us the power to obey. Remember what he said last week, that God works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purposes. And one of the ways he fulfills his good purposes in our lives is by giving us the church, giving us one another to mentor, to apprentice under, other ways that we can embody our faith. There are loads of ways that we can do this. If you're wondering, well, how do I start? How can I get involved? You have in front of you in your pew, you have a little handout like this. It says, get involved. And I would encourage you, to take one of these and to think about how you might get involved in our church. All you need to do is fill it out and you can bring it to the Welcome Center that's in our foyer just to the right up the stairs and someone would love to call you and to talk to you about how you can get involved in our church. I have three questions that I want us to consider as we go from here this week. Three simple questions. One, who are you mentoring? Two, who are you apprenticing under? And finally, how can, in what ways can we embody our Christian faith as we go out from here this week? Let's pray. Would you stand with me? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your great love for us. We thank you for wonderful models of faith, for Jesus who is the pinnacle, for Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and others in our scriptures who set great examples for us. I thank you personally for the women and men in my life who've been such wonderful, patient models of faith for me. And I thank you for those in our church here who, who look to lead the next generation and even look to, to lead their peers. God, I pray that you would help us to walk in obedience to you, that we would both believe and that we would embody to this world around us uh, that you have set us apart and that you called us to live this life, life of everlasting life. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.